You know, we have been working together this week to act out what we're looking forward to. As I said on the first day, we're acting out the cooperation and godly love we want to experience in the coming kingdom of God that we don't see in this world today. This is the last great day, the last great day of the feast, but today is not our day. Our day was the first holy day of the feast a week ago. Just after the seven-day Feast of Tabernacles comes another festival that lasts for one day, the eighth day, a holy day. It's called in the New Testament that last great day of the feast in John 7, 37. This is an important day for others, but we need to understand it. And without this revealed knowledge, we would fall for Satan's deception, just as the rest of the world has. Satan has deceived the Christian world into thinking that God is trying frantically to save all humanity now, as we heard in the sermonette. Most churches teach that now is the day of salvation, that if one dies without accepting Christ, they're lost for all eternity. Any baby that dies unbaptized or unsaved will roast in hell forever, and that most people do go to hell, and only a few will be saved and go to heaven. I was listening to a radio broadcast um, yesterday, actually, and this guy was saying the same kind of a thing. He doesn't understand the Bible. He reads Revelation 7 and 14, and he thinks only 144,000 of all time and all history will go to heaven, and all the rest will go to hell. God's Word tells us a different story. God is a loving Father, and a loving Father wouldn't do that to his children. And yet there must be judgment. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, and I'll just quote this, says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if we read that alone, it sounds like everybody's going to heaven, or everybody's going to be in the kingdom. But then we read Romans 14 and verse 10, and we see... Romans 14, verses 10 through 13. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall be given account for himself to God, and therefore let us not judge one another Anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So Paul was talking about real issues between real human beings just as they are today. They were in his day and they always have been and we have to deal with them. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Bible uses the word judge with two senses. First of all, 
To judge can mean to sit in judgment of someone who commits a certain act. Or, number two, to judge can mean to rule or govern. And the last great day, this last great day of the feast, explains in part when God will judge the whole world in both sentences or senses. At this time, God's only offering salvation to his church, and all the rest of humanity has been blinded by Satan. We know this. We understand this. We're reviewing well-known knowledge and doctrine. Blinded by Satan, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and Revelation 12, verse 9 give that definition, and those really ought to be memory scriptures because that defines everything that's going on. Why is this world such a mess today? Why is it caving so much in the last couple of years? Because Satan's inspiring it, because Satan is doing this. It's easy for me to look around and say, why are these nutty people so crazy? Why are they making these dumb decisions? And then I have to back off and say, well, Satan's inspiring it, and they're listening, and they're following. At this time... God is only offering salvation to his church. And all the rest of humanity has been blinded by Satan, the God of this world. Acts 4 and verse 12. Acts 4 and verse 12, a very pivotal scripture. Acts 4 and verse 12, Nor is there salvation by any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we may be saved. This single scripture says that all the world's religions are false. Disproves all the other religions. I read a book once when I was researching an article I was trying to write. A book about religion in America shows that most people, religious or not, believe in an immortal soul. This goes back to the teachings of Plato 400 years before Christ. They all believe that everything will work out just fine when they die, whether they're religious, whether they're a Christian, whether they're some other religion, whether they're not. So they don't need a Savior. They don't need Jesus Christ or a Messiah to die for them. They're already going to live forever. And they think that forever will be some sort of a nice situation whatever that might be, and they argue about it, and different religions have different ideas. That was a shock to me. I didn't realize that most non-religious people just assumed it's all going to be good, that they don't need any help, that they're good enough. What it really means is I'm my own God, and I can decide. I can set my own standards. I can do whatever I want to do, and it's going to work out just fine because I said so. They don't express it that way, but that's really what it means. So Protestants and Catholics don't need Jesus the Messiah because they're ignorantly worshiping Satan, who teaches that they're fine just the way they are. Just like that first lie that Satan told Eve. You won't die. You'll be fine. Now, he didn't actually say you have an immortal soul. I don't know whether he implied that. But by the time of the Greek philosophers, four or five hundred years before Christ, that was their understanding. John 10 and verse 9. 
John 10 and verse 9 says, I am the door. If anybody enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And then in John 14, verse 6, again, I'll just quote this quickly. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's John 14, verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. About a third of the world today is or claims to be Muslim, and their basic belief and understanding is that Jesus was a prophet, and he was a good man, but he was only human. He wasn't the Son of God, but he wasn't near as good as Muhammad. Muhammad was the chief and the final prophet. And so if they read these verses, they would reject them. That says no one can be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. And really, the other religions reject the same thing, and they don't understand it. Many years ago, Linda and I were given a tour of the Buddhist Wat Thai Temple in Los Angeles. The main room was a large auditorium with a flat carpeted floor, no chairs. Then there was a slight raised platform stage, maybe up a couple of steps, not very much. And up there on the left side was a huge bronze-colored Buddha statue. Great, huge, fat, big thing, bigger than my arms can reach out. The statue looked like bronze, but it was actually hollow fiberglass mold. Remember the old story, you know, he's not heavy, he's my Buddha? (laughs) Mr. Connolly got that one anyway. We are of an age. In front of the Buddha, there were many offerings of food and flowers. The people say that they don't worship Buddha, but they look at it and they give offerings to it. The people look at Buddha, but Buddha was leaning back and was looking way up over everybody else's head, up high to the rear of the auditorium. When we turned around and looked at the very rear of the auditorium on a shelf was a big red dragon. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I was told that the Thai people call themselves the people of the dragon. What impressed me was that the people were focused on Buddha, but Buddha was focusing on and smiling at the red dragon. And I come away thinking that this is the most honest depiction of the world's religions I've ever seen. The people are deceived. They've got something else in front of them. They're told, you know, they use the name of Jesus Christ, maybe, or they use the name of some other teacher or some other prophet. And they think that's really what's important and what's really going on. And they don't see Satan behind the scenes, you know, pulling the puppet strings. The Bible describes three periods of judgment. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and chose the way of Satan, God barred them and all humankind, all mankind, from access to eternal life. Later, Jesus Christ died for the sins of all mankind, and he founded the Church of God. Members of God's church are being judged now. We read in 1 Peter 4 and verse 17. So that first period of judgment is on the church. 1 Peter 4:17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, 
What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You and I are being judged each day, then, by what decisions we make. Every day we choose to eat of the tree of life or of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we probably make that decision multiple times every day. And I'm someone who gets a little impatient and with traffic when I'm driving, especially people clogging up the fast lane, talking or playing on their phones or whatever else when I'm trying to make tracks. Uh, and I realize when I get short-tempered and all, I'm making the wrong decision, aren't I? There are probably multiple times every day when we decide, should I do this the way God says or the way I was taught, the way the world is, the way the business works, the way my community operates? So we really are making those decisions frequently. It's easy for us to say, well, I decided before baptism I'm going to follow the tree of life and I'll never change. It's probably a bit naive. So you and I are being judged every day and God observes and he gets to see what we really believe and who we really are, what we really want. When Christ returns, he will make the final judgment of who is qualified for the kingdom and the saints will be made immortal. And that will be the end of that first period of judgment. So the first period of judgment is on the church. Christ returns, begins the kingdom of God and the thousand-year rule of the God family on earth. And that's the second period of judgment, Daniel 7.22. Daniel 7.22. Daniel 7.22, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And in verse 27, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And then in Psalm 9 and verse 8, and let me just quote this one verse, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. So the resurrected saints will govern with Christ. That will be our part that we have been offered. That is what we have been offered in, in this Uh, path to salvation. It's easy for us to look at other things and wish for other things. When I was a kid growing up, I read lots of history books, Daniel Boone and the Oregon Trail migration and those kinds of things, and I wish that I could have been one of those frontiers folk. I could have lived in Kentucky. I could have been an over-mountain man coming from Virginia, which actually meant a rebel because they weren't supposed to leave Virginia and go over the mountains. They were supposed to stay there so the British could rule them. But, of course, being Israelites, they were hard-headed folks, including those in my family. But I always wished I could see that. And I heard about the millennium and everything else, and I thought, great, I'll get to live at that, and I'll get to enjoy that. Well, that's not for me, is it? It's not for you either. That might be for our grandkids, 
But we've been called and we've been offered something else. We've been offered the opportunity to govern with Christ during that millennium, to teach and to govern and to rule. But what about all the billions of people who have lived and died without a chance for salvation? Are they doomed, as most churches say? What about our friends and loved ones who were not called in this life? My maternal grandfather was half Scott and half Italian, and his name was Gambino. When we were sent to New York, I had to be very careful about mentioning Gambino because that's one of the New York Five crime families and uh, could get me in trouble. It was interesting. He wasn't part of a crime family at all, but it was a dangerous name. I thought he was a wonderful grandpa. Like most old folks in those days, he had false teeth. He could take them out and make faces. He could tell us extravagant stories, and we just loved to hear him and loved to be around him. Later I learned he was not a good husband or a father, and he had a bad reputation around town. But I loved him anyway, and I still do, and I want him to be in the kingdom. He died between my freshman and sophomore years in college about 55 years ago. My maternal great-grandfather was a deputy U.S. marshal in southern Virginia. His cousin was the county sheriff. Now, in those days, a U.S. Marshal was a federal revenuer. He was uh, enforcing the liquor tax laws, and the sheriff was making and selling bootleg whiskey. So one day in 1922, my great-grandfather tried, uh, tried to serve him, execute a warrant, and the sheriff pulled his gun, and they shot and killed each other on the steps of the courthouse. And there's still a plaque on the front of that courthouse commemorating or memorializing, I guess, that event. That was 25 years before I was born, but I still want to meet both of them. So it looks like I come from a long line of lawmen, bootleggers, horse thieves, and assorted rapscallions. Then you might also... That's pretty much the history of the human race, isn't it? All these people, including my grandpas, are not doomed. And that's a great relief. The last great day, or the great white throne judgment, is the third judgment period. And that's what we're here celebrating, commemorating, Remember, we read 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God loves every human being that has ever lived. But just imagine the patience that God has exercised watching 200 failed generations over 6,000 years, waiting for them to learn that their way, which really is Satan's way, doesn't work. In Hebrews, first chapter, it says, Angels are called ministering spirits 
to those who will inherit salvation. And I've wondered, too, wouldn't it be depressing to work with generation after generation and see mostly failure? It certainly would be to me. It seems that we can wear them out with all our faults and mistakes. And if they were human, they would be discouraged. They're not human. They're spirits, so maybe they're above all of that. But the vision of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28 indicates that we don't have a guardian angel, but we have multiple guardian angels that rotate and that deal with us and deal with humans over time. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And again in John 5, verses 28 and 29, John 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who were in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Now that's the first resurrection. That's the resurrection for the first fruits. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And that's the third resurrection. But a second resurrection is planned for all those who have lived and died without having their minds open to God's calling. And that's what we're picturing today. This is where the famous chapter about the Valley of Dry Bones applies. And again, the world gets that all wrong and tries to place that at some other time than what's real. Let's look at Ezekiel 37 and spend some time there. Ezekiel 37 and verse 1. Ezekiel 37 and verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, And as I prophesied, there was a noise and and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. 
Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Indeed, they say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, we ourselves are cut off. So it's speaking about the ancient dead that were Israelites. Now remember, the Bible is Israel's book. And so it only deals with other nations whenever they come in contact or have a relationship with Israel. But the principle is the same for the whole world. This is what's going to happen to all the dead. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Let's look at Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So this is the great white throne judgment, and they were taught and judged by the books of the Bible. Again, the world misunderstands and thinks that somehow God is up there taking notes about everything you and I do every day, and he's going to take us one at a time, kind of behind the woodshed, and read us the riot act for everything we ever did. But what's happened is they lived a failed life. They didn't know God. They weren't called. Their minds weren't opened. They experienced a time when Satan was deceiving everyone, and now God is resurrecting them, and now he's beginning to teach them. And they're going to be judged like you and I are every day by what they do. They will have been taught the Bible, the books of the Bible, and this will be their opportunity. Since they've already lived in their Satan's world, they won't need to do that again. And we all assume that they will remember, have some memory of their former life and what it was like. How long will it last? Isaiah 65 and verse 17. Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 25. Isaiah 65, 17. 
For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people as a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor a man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die one hundred years old, but the sinner, being one hundred years old, shall be accursed. This is the verse where we came to call this the one hundred year period. And when you think about this, if this is only 100 years long, and babies who are born and adults who are born, everyone lives 100 years, then there will be no new babies born during this time. Because if they had 100 years, then that would extend on out into the future. My mother had three miscarriages and three full-term children. And to this day, she's 92 and a half, she'll be 93 in January. If the subject ever comes up, she breaks down and mourns for those lost children. In the early years of the church and the Radio Church of God in the 1950s, and I suppose up into the early 60s at least, Herbert Armstrong thought that the spirit in man that we read about twice in the Bible entered a baby with their first breath. And at that point in time, when they were born and breathed the first time, then that spirit in man, which gave them sentience, conscience, gave them mind, then they became fully human at that point in time. But some years later, he realized that that wasn't the case, and he concluded that life begins at conception. And at that point, and from that point, Uh, He said clearly, and the church has said clearly, that abortion then is murder because life does begin at conception. And Mr. Armstrong speculated that those lost children and all the aborted babies may well be included in the second resurrection. The Bible doesn't say one way or the other, but one thing leads to another, and so we infer that. Verse 21 They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So we are called to be the first fruits, and if we qualify, we will be there to work with them. And we can speculate and we can imagine how things would work. It's fun to do. I know it's given my mother some comfort to think that if she is there, somehow she will be able to take care of those three children in their hundred-year life. 
and God simply hasn't told us. But he's given us hints that gives us things to speculate about. If a day for us is a thousand years for God, and vice versa, God controls time. God could be in two places at once. Angels reveal themselves to humans. Christ revealed himself to Paul and other people. Did that mean he was no longer spirit at that time? He was no longer God? Uh, That doesn't make any sense. We could say uh, spirit beings can be in two places at once for as far as we can tell. But we have no idea how that would work. Mom hopes that she will get to raise those three children. At the same time, if the other families aren't having children, maybe they will be assigned all of these babies and children, and and they will learn by rearing them in God's way. You know, there is one skill set that God wants us all to learn, and that's child rearing, because that's what we're going to be doing in the millennium and in the hundred-year period. Those same principles, godly child rearing, is what makes humans and adults work together. The same principles of teaching, encouraging, leading, correcting. They're not just for children. They're for all humans. And so the spirit beings will be using those skills as well. And so we can see that God really wants us all to have that understanding. So we'll see. We'll see what God has determined and how it's going to work out. But it will work out according to his plan and according to his will. This will be the first time that these people have been called, the first time their minds have been opened to understand God's way. Many of them will have died in infancy, from birth defects. Still, it is very common in Africa for many children to die, a significant percentage of the children in Africa die before age five or six. And that's what it has been in all history. That's what it was in this country. That's what it was in ancient, or I call it ancient, old England before we came over here in the 1600s and all. It's what it's been down through all time. And so there are many, many children that will be resurrected, that will need to be healed and made whole and healthy so that they can live a full hundred years. Others have been mentally deficient or insane. You know, we have, we talk about Tamerlane. Actually, he was Tamer of the Lane. But when uh, medical doctors examined his skull and the bones that they could find of him, he was deformed. And the doctors said he must have had great pain and great headaches throughout his life. Uh, There's another famous Viking that was called the Boneless. His legs didn't work, and he was carried around and carried into battle. He was uh, a Viking. And it said of the Vikings, they became berserk. That's where we get that name. They were called berserkers which really meant demon-possessed, losing their mind and going into frenzy in battle. There are a lot of people who need to be healed. Their minds need to be healed. Their bodies need to be healed. And they'll be resurrected. And we think of these people as being horrible, evil people, and they were. But whenever God heals them and changes them, they'll have a fresh start. 
They won't have to deal with Satan or Satan's false ideas. The earth will be a true paradise after 1,000 years of God's government. Everyone will live a full life. They'll be taught and led by spirit members of the God family. However, as odd as that seems, not everybody will want God's way. There will be rebels. Not everybody will want what God offers. And so those who don't will be sentenced to the lake of fire. Revelation 20 and verse 13. Revelation 20 and verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And death and the grave, Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now this lake of fire described in other places really is a a melting down, a sanitizing of this earth. The whole crust of the earth will be melted, molten lava. It says that it, that everything that man has done will be removed. So the crust of the earth will be turned in its elements again, the elemental form of lava. And it's going to have to go fairly deep because... We've drilled oil wells, I think, something like 12 to 15 miles deep in the mantle of the earth. So it would have to go that deep to obliterate everything humans have done that have defiled this earth and made it impure. And then that will all be cooled down, and ultimately God will bring his new Jerusalem and his throne down here. But not while there's any remnant of sinful human beings. And after that, there won't be any more humans. Every human who has ever lived will have been given a genuine opportunity, a genuine calling, their minds opened to understand God's word, to understand what God is offering us, just as ours have been. And you've probably remembered that for yourself, but as a minister, I've gotten to see it many times when you talk to somebody one day and they don't get it at all. And maybe a week or two or a month or two later, they do get it. And there's a huge change. It's like God's reached down and flipped a switch in their brain. And there's a huge change. I remember a time when a pastor that was training me, I was working for, and I were visiting a couple. And the wife obviously was getting it. It was clear she was being called and she was receptive. And the husband was sitting there arguing with us and trying to disprove and put everything off. But we could see that um, he was getting some of it. He just didn't like it. He just didn't want it. And as we left, we were kind of laughing and saying, it's going to be fun to watch that guy come into the kingdom and into the church kicking and screaming. That's pretty well what happened. A few months later, he was in the church, and a few years later, he was a deacon. So some of us have done that, and that's the way it works. But for these people, they will have that genuine opportunity. 
for those who don't want it, for those who rebel, then they will be put out of their misery, but actually they'll be put out of our misery too. God is not going to allow anyone into his kingdom that might turn on him like Satan did. We don't need, he doesn't need, he doesn't want any more Satans that will live forever and be disruptive. After this, there will be no more humans. All humans who have ever lived will have gone through that calling and selection process, and they will either be spirit members of God's family or they will be ashes under the feet of the saints. Malachi 3, verse 16. Malachi 3, verse 16. This is a very interesting series of verses, concepts. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. That doesn't sound so hard, does it? You know, we wander around out in the auditorium afterward, out in the hall, and everybody's chattering. I walked up here and passed the front door, and the men out there can hear me now, but they were three of them talking to each other. That, that seems pretty normal. That doesn't seem so important, does it? Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So it depends on what we're talking about. And obviously, this is a time where we're starting to sigh and cry for what we see in the world. Our country is changing. Our country is no longer the country we grew up in. The standards, the values, the laws can't be trusted. Um, we talk to each other about prophecy. We talk to each other iron sharpening iron. And God observes and sees, and he values this. The Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. We may think that's some special kind of meditation, but aren't we doing that in service? We're thinking about what God is teaching us. We're reading God's name, Jesus' name. We're referencing that. We're looking forward to the prophecy and the kingdom and wanting to be there. And yes, at this point in time, we're meditating on God's name. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, and I will leave them neither root nor branch. And that phrase is used repeatedly in the Old Testament talking about genealogy, talking about descendants. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So when that earth has been melted down, 
the lake of fire has consumed everything, gone out, and the earth has cooled again, then, in effect, we're walking on the ashes of all the evil on the earth from then on, aren't we? Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant. It goes back to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been in effect for all humans since the creation of Adam and Eve. They have been in effect. They never change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When Paul wrote that, yesterday was the Old Testament in history. Today was the New Testament, the first century there, and forever is our day and for all time. The Ten Commandments have been in effect for all humans. Now, we heard people tell us about 25 years ago when the church came apart that they didn't know and they weren't responsible and so it's all right. But it's not. We see an end-time prophecy that Jesus Christ is going to punish the world during the day of the Lord for breaking the Ten Commandments. And it says, and they didn't repent of their murders, of their adulteries, of their drugs, of their lies. That's Ten Commandments. It's always been in effect, and it always will be as long as there are humans. But angels, spirit beings, since they don't have sex, since they don't marry or the way we do, they wouldn't need a law about adultery or fornication. They're not capable. This is something that only humans do, and so we need that. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This has not been fulfilled yet. The church has been attempting, trying, doing its best to fulfill this role, but we do not have someone that we can recognize yet as Elijah the prophet. Sometimes the issues are with prophecy that we only see them in retrospect. You know, we see them after they're over. We turn back and say, oh, yeah, that's when it was, and we don't see it coming. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This was a failing of the Radio Church of God in the 1950s and early 60s. We, in all sincerity and effort to obey God, misunderstood authority, misunderstood the roles of marriage. Uh, my father heard a sermon one time in Pasadena and said, if your wife disobeys you, you ought to spank her. He tried that once. Uh, that's not God's way, and it didn't work. So there are things that we've had to learn, but this is what's happening, and I would say it's been happening in a much greater way in recent years. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So after this, there will be no more humans. There will be no more cities to govern, and we will have a new job. Let's treat Let's read Revelation 21 and 22.
Revelation 21 and 22. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Now these are men changed to spirit because there aren't any humans left. He will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things, physical life, human beings, and all of those things that we experienced have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ, the one that we know as Jesus Christ, the one we call Jesus Christ, was first the companion, the Logos, the spokesman, with God the Father. The two of them were there. And they lived in a spirit world. There was no physical world. There was no universe. They live in their own world, and we can't really imagine it. We don't know much about it. We don't hardly know anything about it. But at some point in time in the past, they decided that they wanted to multiply their family. And the Logos was given the first assignment to create the physical world that we know, we inhabit. It's all we know. And we frankly know very little about it. There are so many billions of galaxies out there. You know, when the Hubble telescope went up first, there was a tiny, tiny error in the mirror in that telescope. The error was less than the thickness of a human hair. But the telescope couldn't see very well. It was out of focus. And so when they sent up a repair crew and gave it glasses and fixed that error, then it immediately discovered 50, was it 50 billion new galaxies? Something like that. They could see so much further. And they discovered billions of galaxies like our Milky Way. So the Logos was the creator, and he was the one that created Adam and Eve. He did the multiple creations of this earth. In Canada, there was a museum. We were at the Feast in Hull many years ago, and there was a museum there, and they had a display called Five Periods of Great Dying. And this display showed their best understanding that there have been five times when basically all life or 98% of life 95% of life has been wiped out on this earth. And the last time was the dinosaurs. And we see if you go down into the Grand Canyon and look at the walls and read the books about it, that God has created multiple times and multiple stages. And we don't understand a lot about that. But whatever it was, the one that was the Logos did that creating And then he was the God of the Old Testament that spoke to Adam and Eve 
to Abraham. He was Melchizedek in a different role for a while. And then later he was born of Mary and became the Son of God. And we think of him as Jesus Christ. Paul shows in Hebrews and other places that he was the God of the Old Testament. And then after he died and was resurrected as the wave sheaf offering that Sunday morning, he was given a new role. And in Matthew 28:18, he says, All power has been given to me. That was new truth. That was different. That wasn't the case when he walked the earth as a human being. He was given a new challenge. While he was on the earth, he was preaching the coming kingdom of God. But now he is bringing to be the kingdom of God. First of all, teaching us, preparing, mentoring us. And then at his second coming, actually beginning that kingdom of God. So he's had multiple roles. The father has distanced himself from sinful humans always. The father never interfaces, let's say, with humans. We get to pray to the Father, and he hears us, but he doesn't come uh, speaking to us directly. It's always been the Logos who became the God of the Old Testament, who became Jesus Christ. And then there's a scripture that says at the end of all of this, when the kingdom is produced and all the humans have been through the process and they're only spirit children of God, that Jesus is going to hand the kingdom to the Father. It's been his commission for all these, what, billions of years maybe? To produce that kingdom. And when it's finished, he will hand it back to the Father. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters. The beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, what does that mean? People who are afraid, people who are afraid to step out, people who go along to get along because they don't want other people upset at them. They don't have the faith that God will back them up and see them through it and cause them to ultimately succeed and be in his family. The unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven blast plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. 
Now the wall of the city and the twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Jesus promised his apostles that they'd be ruling over these tribes. He who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city was laid out as a square. Its length was as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length and breadth and height are equal. And we've estimated that as about 1,500 miles. A cube, 1,500 miles. Now, if you're an astronomer or an engineer, you will ask the question, how can the earth do that and not completely wobble out of shape? Well, because this is spirit. Because God said he could, and God will do it. It won't be what we're used to. It will be a different world. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And there are different cubits that are mentioned in the Bible and in history. There are at least three of them that we've been aware of, uh, and there could be more. Basically, a cubit was forearm's length, but my forearm is a little longer than others, my wife's particularly, or my grandchildren. So this is saying an angel's measure, God's measure, and I can't tell you what that is. The construction of its wall was of jasper. The city was of pure gold, light clear glass. Is gold clear? John's describing the best he can, things he's seeing. Uh, He's saying, I don't really know what this is, but it's sort of like gold, but it's clear. And there's a lot of that in Revelation. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst, semi-precious stones. And if you dig out a book or Google it or go to a museum, you see that these are, are crystals, that are very pretty crystals that God's created. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. I'll bet that oyster was not happy. (laughs) That would have been a giant problem. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were its temple, and the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who were saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. And again, remember, these are spirit beings. These are not physical beings. And it speaks of kings. We're going to see what that organization will be and what the next job will be. The Bible doesn't tell us. You know, the Bible is so small, it really only covers about 7,100 years of time. It doesn't tell us about prehistory. And it doesn't tell us much about what happens after God returns. But God is a creator and God is working. 
So something is going to happen. The gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And as I said, the Father separates himself from sin and sinful people, and all humans are sinful. At Christ's second coming, he will judge the present world in the day of the Lord. He will bind Satan and usher in the kingdom of God on this earth. And then after the first thousand years of his rule, the second resurrection will occur, and that great number of people will be given their calling. And then again, he will make the final judgment. The scripture says the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. That means to me that the Father doesn't decide who's going to be in the kingdom. He's committed that role to the Son, and the Son is going to make those judgments, cause it to happen, bring it all together before he presents it to the Father. He will make the final judgment at the lake of fire, and then at the successful fulfillment of his commission, the kingdom and the family will be complete. You know, Christ said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets or do away with the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. This is what that means. The law and the prophets are in effect and are necessary as long as there are human beings. And the fulfillment of all of that is producing the kingdom of God. Now the Father will bring his throne in the new Jerusalem to this earth and live with his spirit children in a true spiritual family of God. Verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the midst of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And we say, hmm, if they're spirit, why do they need healing? We can also say, if there are billions of galaxies and they're all uninhabited, why are they there? Does God waste all that energy and all that effort to maintain them, to create them, and never going to use them? Well, we assume not. And we infer from all of this that, as it says in another scripture, of his kingdom and of his power there will be no end. And that somehow, and I better stop there, this process will continue and will be part of it. It's fine to speculate. It's fine to ask the questions. I wonder if, how is this going to happen? Why is that going to happen? We can't know. It's fine as long as we don't take a position and we say, I know. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Because we can't know. Obviously, the spirit world is so much more than we can understand that God hasn't tried to explain it to us. But we will when we're spirit. Verse 3, there shall be no more curse. 
But the house of the God, house of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he says to me, These words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. You know, the world reads Revelation, and first of all, they get it wrong. They call it Revelations, and I'm keeping, I coach some of the speakers in my area to change that because that's an old habit that they grew up with. It is the book of Revelation 1. It's not the revelation of St. John the Divine. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that the Father gave him to teach his servants. And in Revelation, I believe it's 11 times that phrase, his servants, are used. And it always means baptized, converted children of God, church members. It doesn't mean anybody else. That's why the world can't understand it. And they get it wrong. He said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, I can imagine that angel was so spectacular that John didn't know whether it was God or not, and he just hedged his bets, and he was overcome, and he was humbled, and he fell down. But he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. This is for the church. And remember, the early church didn't get this. Peter and Paul never read it. They never understood this. This was new truth. This was knowledge revealed almost 30 years after they died. And it was for the church, for the church only. But it was really for the end time. Church of God. And so this has really been for the church in the last, let's say, century to come to understand these things, and that's what happened. God gave the understanding slowly to Herbert W. Armstrong back in the early 20th century. And he was following and keeping the holy days for years when he didn't understand them. He didn't know why. He knew they were important. God said to keep them, so he did, but he didn't know what they meant. I remember when I was about 12 years old, a group of young ministers in my folks' home then invited over for a meal, and they were talking about these things and speculating about end-time prophecy and what does this mean and how is this going to work. This was in the mid, actually late 50s. And the church didn't know everything yet. We can take it for granted that we, we're the church, we know this, we've always known this. No. The New Testament church didn't know it early on. It was in the 90s at the end of that first era of the church when they began to understand. 
and it wasn't for them. And in the early 20th century, we didn't know everything. We were the church, but God reveals information in his time. Verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. There are going to be those who don't want it and are not going to change. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, Jesus says, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments. Always going back to the basic Ten Commandments and the other statutes and judgments that God gave us. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs. That was apparently a pejorative word for male temple prostitutes in those days. Sex has always figured heavily in religions all over around the world. It still does in some ways in some religions today. Outside are dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. At the very end, one of the final defining laws is lying. This is really serious. It's something that the world is that, well, you know, white lies, they don't matter. I mean, and today in the news, well, that was just politics. It's okay if it's politics. You can lie your head off. But that's not what God says. He, whoever loves and practices a lie. It was defined to us years ago by one of the ministers in the church that Satan invented lying, and apparently he did because he decided it was better. Better to lie because you challenge other people and make them think. You know, uh, we're told, be aware. Be aware when you go buy something. Is it Does it work? Does it have value? If somebody tells you something, should you listen? Should you believe? No. And Satan's world is full of lies. And apparently Satan decided that lying was better because it challenges people. It was certainly okay. Well, God says it's not. God says it's not at all. Whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star, The spirit of the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. So we have to be very careful to add other things, to believe other things that we've heard or we come up with beyond the book. 
And then just the opposite is the case. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part in the book of life. And I hear, and I've heard, you probably have too, Protestant ministers, Catholic ministers say, oh, well, Revelation, that's already fulfilled. You don't have to worry about that. Or that doesn't really apply to us because Christ died for our sins. Those things take away. But we've also had men, people, not just men, actually women, who wanted to be prophetesses, who came from the church, who came up with other ideas and their own doctrines, and they started teaching. And sometimes people followed, people listened. We've had offshoot groups from the very beginning. I think it was the very first graduating class of Ambassador College. Uh, A couple of them were ordained evangelists, and two brothers left us in the very early 50s, about 1953, and started their own group. You shake your head. The first or second class, I think they were in the first class, and they defected and they decided to go start their own group. It came to nothing. Nothing ever happened. But this has been happening all along, and it's still happening, and it's going to continue to happen until Christ returns. That's what he says in Matthew 24. So keep your eyes open and don't be deceived when somebody comes up with some new addition or subtraction from the words of God. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So it's all right for me to say, I hope he comes quickly. I'm getting old. And I really hope he comes soon. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This day is a day of good news. Our loving God, our Father, will give everyone who has ever lived a genuine opportunity for salvation. Only those who don't want it will be lost. So, what should we be doing? Let's finish in Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. My family and I have enjoyed being with you this year. It's been a great feast site, our first time on the Oregon coast for the feast. I wish you God's peace, his blessings, his protection on you on the way home and throughout the coming year. Live as servants of Jesus Christ and as Christian lights in your communities. And we hope to see you at another Feast of Tabernacles, and if not that, at the great marriage supper of the Lamb.